and welcome to Population Health Plug-In, a show highlighting current public health topics in our community and things of interest to students across the university. My name is Mina Nabavi, and I'm a program manager in the Office of Public Health Practice at the UAB School of Public Health. Today we are joined by Ms. Carrie Leland. Ms. Leland is the Executive Director of Pathways. Pathways is a United Way agency that serves approximately 1,600 women and children who are experiencing homelessness in the Birmingham area. This is actually Ms. Leland's second time as a guest on the podcast. The first time was about a year ago, and we are very happy that she agreed to join us again for an update on the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the homeless population in Birmingham, Alabama. As most of America has been asked to stay at home during this outbreak and limit exposure to others, there is a group of people who cannot, the homeless, and they are some of the most vulnerable in our population. Guidance coming directly from health professionals says people should quarantine at home, stay at home, stay away from other people. And that's literally impossible to do if you're someone who is experiencing homelessness. You don't have your own place to go. It is estimated that approximately 1,300 individuals are experiencing homelessness in Alabama on any given night. And we wanted to invite Ms. Leland to this podcast to learn more about this vulnerable population during the pandemic and how a local shelter, Pathways, is able to safely provide housing, care, and food to this population. So thank you, Ms. Leland, for being here today and taking time out of your busy schedule to speak with me. So to get us started, what is your number one concern for your clients? My number one concern for my clients is, of course, that they will contract COVID-19. I have been saying through this pandemic that to be homeless is a tragedy. To be homeless and have COVID-19 is a double tragedy. And so my concern is whether they're living outside or in an emergency shelter um, or in their vehicle. It's just how do we protect an already vulnerable population who has underlying conditions, many of whom uh, have those underlying conditions that we hear about that have worse outcomes when you uh, do contract COVID, is how do we keep um, our population of homeless people healthy and so that we can reduce um, compounding tragedies uh, in their life? That leads nicely to my second question, which is about kind of the challenges that residents and shelters face today. Can you speak to some of those challenges? I think a challenge for um, Pathways and even some other um, shelters in the area that I've spoken to the, the directors there is it's really hard to quarantine and to hang with the quarantining. I know that there's fatigue throughout the nation. There's fatigue of quarantining with people who uh, have their own homes that are quite comfortable to be quarantined in. But to be quarantined when you're in a um, shelter environment is difficult because when you come into shelter, we start working with you to address the barriers that um, have you or your family uh, in homelessness. Uh, we work to remove those barriers. We work to connect people to housing. And there's so much that we just can't do because some agencies are closed down or there's only virtual appointments now and, um, you know, where we could send you to an office for a voucher for this or that or do some case planning things. And there's a lot of verbs in case planning when you're talking about moving a family or an individual out of homelessness. And 
we've just had to be still a lot in 2020. And that is not within our control. It is not within the control of the clients. It's not um, that they're not working toward a goal or that shelters aren't doing everything they can to support moving uh, people to housing or, or ending homelessness for a family. So I think the biggest challenge is just it was already hard to get what you need uh, to put a plan together to uh, move yourself toward a goal. And that has been difficult for people who were facing access barriers to those things prior to the pandemic. And so as the world has gone remote, as offices have closed, as people have worked less hours, a lot of our people work in the service industry as those jobs have gone away, as childcare centers have closed, it's just added to some of the hurdles that we have to jump through. And I think that's hard. And then the quarantining, um, just sheltering in place, being safer at home, uh, dealing with all of that, that is stressful to people mentally because it is that being still. And so that's been the biggest challenge is just well-being uh, for people in a very difficult time in their life, which is homelessness, but then well-being in a difficult time nationally where we're all going through a very difficult time. And so I think that just a sense of well-being and that this is going to end and working around the compounded hurdles uh, is our biggest challenge. And to follow up on, you know, quarantining, you know, 14 days is a long time to quarantine for anyone. So how are you dealing with that at Pathways? Are if someone is asked to quarantine, are you, do you isolate that person at Pathways or do you have to send them somewhere else? Are, are there places for them to go? I want to tell you about our intake process as it relates to quarantining because that's changed. What we cannot do is take people into shelter in a congregate shelter situation at this time until we know as best as we can know whether they have COVID or not. Um, if I were to bring a positive case in, then I could end up with 20 positive cases. And so early on, the continuum of care uh, got together and decided about our intake processes and how we were going to screen uh, people for COVID coming in. And one thing that was decided is we would establish a quarantine shelter and do intake from there. So we actually have a, a shelter. It's the quarantine shelter. And people uh, who are seeking entry into the residential program, uh, like Pathways, go there and they are tested for COVID. And when we get a negative result back, then they come to Pathways to be placed in one of our programs where they have a bed. And so that's one thing uh, about our intake process that has changed. Now, once someone gets into Pathways, then we are observing the safer at home rules, which means we have limited coming and going. If a client needs to go somewhere for an appointment that is uh, purposeful, particularly something related to their case plan about ending homelessness, work. We have a lot of different discussions about employment, but what we try to do is we even try to make sure that we limit the comings and the goings of people, not that they can't come and go, but we try to be very purposeful when we go out and when we come back in as to we left, we achieved something, and we're coming back. Um, so there's not as much freedom of movement, and that is to keep us all safe. But that is difficult. It is very difficult for people who are housed, like I said, in their own homes, to want to sit in their home all day and 
think about where they go and limit their travel. And so, you know, apply that to 30 people living in a shelter and that can be unpleasant for the staff and the clients. You'd never want to limit anybody's mobility um, or their sense of self-determination. And so we don't want to do that at all, but we have to think of the perspective of how many trips out, you know, keep us safe. And we have faced some instances of COVID um, amongst our staff and had to think really hard about how to uh, keep our population, you know, keep that from going down to the clients and vice versa. That's what we're dealing with as far as quarantine. We're trying to be safer at home or safer in the shelter, if you will. And then our intake process really revolves around quarantining, being tested, and then coming into the shelter. You discussed the intake process, but can you talk about any other public health measures that you've implemented at Pathways as far as protecting, you know, clients and, and your staff? So one of the things that we do, um, of course, if somebody is displaying symptoms or think they've been exposed, we have that person tested. Um, if it's a staff person, they do not come to work until we know the result. Uh, we have a staff positive. They do not come back until we have a, a negative. If it's a client that uh, ends up having a COVID positive, we isolate them from the group and then reintroduce them after we have a negative. We do not do congregate feeding in our building anymore. We actually take to-go meals to other shelters and um, we have the street homeless who come in and eat with us. Some of them take their meal to go and eat that outside. Um, so we're trying to limit a lot of congregate activity. We had 60 to 80 people eating inside our building in our dining room prior to COVID. We have rotating times and we've come up with some really creative ways to disperse the crowd and not feed 60 to 80 people sitting shoulder to shoulder. And that's been very successful. We've had to introduce plexiglass barriers and hand sanitizer and gloves and masks for everybody. We give away a lot of masks. Um, staff have to wear a mask at all times. Anytime someone's outside of their individual bedroom, they, they have to wear a mask when interacting with others. We have a call box outside of our building. And so people don't have to come in for us to find out, you know, if they're looking for services or how we can help them. We can actually talk to them through that. And then you know, let them in if they um, if they do need to be in our building. And so every decision we make, whether it's how we feed or where we place people in the building, um, how we staff the building is based on those things. So I want to switch gears a bit and talk about how Pathways and other providers have been impacted by the economic burden of this crisis. One thing is it's not a very good year to have an event. So uh, nonprofits have events, and of course, these are things you sell tickets to, or people come and they make a donation. Uh, this is just not the year for events, and so Pathways didn't have a fundraising event this year. Uh, we're not the only one who's had to cancel fundraising events. Uh, we just have not had any events this year. There is a lot of need right now, and there's a lot of competition for funding. Um, there's also cost that we didn't anticipate when in 2019 when we made the 2020 budget we did not anticipate that we would need forehead thermometers our ppe our to-go boxes and all that comes with that twice the cleaning supplies professional cleanings of the building and it has cost a lot more uh, for us to deliver services this year because of all the things that are required to do so that have not been required before. And so those 
expenses which have increased in service delivery combined with the fact that we're not having events. Um, you know, I'm not speaking to groups publicly, civic clubs, organizations, and nonprofits operate on a tight budget anyway. And, you know, we just didn't plan for these extra things. And so to me, that has been the economic impact. And this leads kind of to my next question, um, you know, besides the monetary donations, I know Pathways prior to the pandemic, y'all would take in in-person donations um, of products and meals. But on your website, I noticed that that has stopped or is no longer um, an option for people. Um, how have you been able to overcome that loss? Well, we have an Amazon wish list, and I have been so pleasantly surprised by the number of people who buy things from us um, off of that wish list and have it shipped to our building. And honestly, that has been a lifesaver during the pandemic. You know, we have people who buy masks and gloves and hand sanitizer off our wish list and washing powder and other things that we were, you know, taking in uh, like that. People have really responded well to the idea of um, our wish list and shipping it to us, um, they still get the experience of giving and we still get the experience of, you know, our neighbors and our community uh, helping us with the immediate and tangible needs that we have to serve the homeless population. And that has been very successful. And I've been very thankful for that um, pleasant surprise. So we didn't have really a hard transition from in-person giving to this online giving. So I know that programming had to stop at the beginning of the pandemic. And, you know, the School of Public Health was just one of many partners that came in and provided health education sessions for um, clients at Pathways. How are you dealing with the loss of education and resources for your clients? That has been uh, one of the many things about this pandemic that I have really not been thrilled about because we had 18 community partners, including the School of Public Health, who came in monthly and provided classes and sessions on a variety of topics. And it was so good for those that we serve to interact with groups in the community who have an interest in the issue of homelessness and care about their neighbor and, you know, want to come in and um, impart knowledge and skills and compassion and, and empathy to those that we serve. And I can't underscore the value of people feeling heard and invested in. And for me, it's been most heartbreaking. Um, to lose the community partners coming in and doing that with our people. I get from the public health perspective why it's the best thing to do. I can't wait from the mental health perspective of when we can get back to doing it. So we have developed some new programming within the building um, that the Pathway staff is delivering. Some of it has been uh, born out of necessity and very, very good. And uh, we're going to hang on to some of this, uh, these new classes and this new programming even when we open back up. I have been thrilled to see uh, what our people can do and how well they can do it. We've also had some clients who have really taken the lead in sharing from their own perspectives what they know with each other, with the group, with us. And so sometimes in the stillness, um, beautiful things come to light. And the small group that lives within the shelter programs we have really gotten to hear from them as teachers. And I think that's been important 
And we always were learning from our clients and, you know, having a lot of peer-to-peer stuff going on. But to have it in a classroom setting or where it's really, you know, they're leading it and we are determining with each group that comes in what that particular group needs. It's allowed us to be highly personal. And I think that lesson has not been lost on, you know, me or the rest of the staff. And I've appreciated that about it. So I want to to switch a bit, kind of looking to the future a little bit. Um, How is Pathways planning for the winter months? You know, it's November um, and thankfully Alabama winters are generally mild, but do you um, and other homeless shelters in Birmingham anticipate a higher demand for housing in the near future? The winter months are always a time of concern because we do have some of the homeless population who um, would live outside normally that will come in in the winter months. The winter months offer an opportunity uh, for warming stations on the coldest of nights where we do have some clients that we don't always interact with that come in. Pathways has served as a warming station historically um, for the street homeless on the coldest of cold nights. My concern for the winter months is how are we going to address the warming station? You know, is it safe to have one? Can we do that safely? How should we um, think through those things. I do believe that the winters are generally mild and most nights we're not going to have a problem. I think on the nights that it's really too cold um, for people to sleep outside and there would be a negative health impact from sleeping outside, that maybe we look at what one of my colleagues in the field called micro warming stations. I thought that was brilliant when she mentioned it. Can I have 25 extra people sleeping in the building at night? Probably not. But could I have five safely and then maybe somebody else have five and somebody else have five? I think this is an opportunity if we're going to explore that conversation of these micro warming stations that churches could get involved even and maybe open a portion of their building to take in four or five. And and just other people who have typically not participated in being a warming station, this would really be an opportunity for the community to talk as a whole about what we're going to do as a response on these coldest of cold nights. I can tell you those conversations are already happening. Um, And so I'll be interested to see what the outcome is. But do know that there are people um, who work with the homeless population that are already in discussion about how to handle this issue. I personally love the idea of the micro warming station. I think we can do that safely and still meet the need. I think there will be a higher demand for housing in the near future because I think that we're going to have people who have never been homeless before become homeless as a result of the pandemic. Most tragedies in society, such as pandemics, are worn most heavily on the backs of those who were struggling already before the crisis hit. And so I think we had some people who were hanging on by a thread, who were living paycheck to paycheck, making it month to month, sometimes getting behind the bills, but then being able to catch it up. And I think there are people who are going to experience homelessness for the first time and pathways and other homeless service providers will be there for them. 
That's great. And that that leads to my final question. Uh, you know, you mentioned homelessness prevention, you know, but are there any other lasting results that you hope for once we, we get through this pandemic, once we're at the end? I think that we've all become uncomfortable. Uh, we've all been through something together. Uh, COVID has really been no respecter of persons or socioeconomic status or race or class or religion, any of those things that we usually use to separate each other. I think it's happened to the world as a whole, and it is not hard to understand your neighbor's story of how COVID has impacted them because many of us, it's impacted us personally already. And so when we can experience a struggle universally and hard times together, it breeds empathy. I always think that we can come out of this elevated. We have seen that everyone needs a home to be safe in. It's really hard to be safe at home when you don't have a home. We have seen that people need access to health care to have outcomes that are favorable. We have seen how important it is to have child care that you can afford so that you can sustain employment and then ultimately sustain housing. So there are some issues that people have dealt with that they wouldn't have previously dealt with. And I hope that we will start seeing uh, folks, not just for their struggle and their problems, but their humanity and what things contribute to the struggle and then how do we address those things. And so that's what I hope uh, comes on the other side of this pandemic. That's a wonderful way to, to end this podcast. So thank you, Miss Leland, for being here for sharing this information with our listeners. We're so grateful for the work that you are doing in our community and for the partnership that the School of Public Health has with Pathways. And thank you for listening. Please tune in next time for another episode of Population Health Plugin. 